coming to you live from the basement of an abandoned house in the middle of a field. It's the Derek Izzy Show. Making history his story, Derek Izzy. Moses, thank you for that wonderful introduction. You are listening to The Derek Izzy Show. Moses, let me tell you, it is so nice to have you back. Why don't you tell the listeners about your vacation? Well, I had a wonderful time. We went down to Mexico. Oh, really? And how, how was that? Let me tell you, it was a good time down there. We ate some delicious Mexican food, got to go out on the beach. It was a really relaxing time. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, that Mexican food. That's legit. Getting real Mexican food straight from Mexico. If you like good food, here on the Derek Izzy Show, we recommend Blue Apron. Moses, while you're away, I know you had some good Mexican food, but did you miss Blue Apron at all? Actually, yes, I did. Blue Apron is is great. I've had some really wonderful meals with it. I'm glad they're a sponsor on the show because our listeners can get a discount and it's a really good deal for them. It'll turn every amateur person into a chef. It's it's a good family thing too. Sometimes I'll make dinner with my wife and we've got a real easy recipe to follow. And we make delicious food in the end. If you'd like to make delicious food with Blue Apron, as a listener of the Derek Izzy Show, you will get a $30 discount on your first order. Customizable, home-cooked meals all for an average of about $10 per person per meal. And it's great. The food that you get, it's it's gourmet-level, restaurant-quality food. I mean, this is good stuff. If you want your discount, you just go to blueapron.com slash Izzy. That's my last name, I-Z-Z-I. Blueapron.com slash Izzy. $30 off your first order, and you will be loving the food that you get from Blue Apron. Moses, asking you a little bit more about your trip. As far as getting around Mexico, I know that you flew in, but how did you how did you get around Mexico? Did you you take a taxi or... Um, did you hitch a ride? What What was your mode of transportation? Actually, I used Lyft. Lyft is kind of a, a taxi service. It's, they're around the world. I mean, you just download the Lyft app. It's L-Y-F-T, and you're good to go. It's really, really cheap. It's like half the price of a taxi, and I used it all over the place. The drivers were friendly and they actually, the drivers that I had spoke English, so that was really helpful. Yeah. And it was pretty awesome. 
I use Lyft all the time now when I don't really want to drive. That that's very Got cool. Got the app on my phone. It's L Y F T, and I, I I love it. Yeah, the app is so easy to use. Just download that Lyft app, L Y F T. And for all you first-time users of Lyft, I've got a discount code for you. As a listener to the Derek Izzy Show, you just plug in your discount code Derek D E R E K six zero five five zero three. Once again, that's Derek D E R E K six zero five five zero three. And if you use it on your first ride with Lyft, you will get between five and twenty dollars off your ride. Now, the discount depends on what market you're in for the amount. Down here in Florida, it's a $10 discount. In Dallas, it might be $5, or in Minneapolis, it might be $20. It all depends where you are. And the Lyft app will give you a fair estimate so you can see what your ride is probably going to cost you in advance. The fair estimates are always very accurate. They give you a little range so you can get a good idea about what the fare is going to be and what it could be if there's traffic. The app is very up-to-date, friendly, easy to use, and the Lyft drivers are friendly and safe. The Lyft drivers go through a background check and a screening and training process, so your Lyft driver has been trained by another Lyft driver. It is all set up so you can have a positive, inexpensive ride-sharing experience. Download the Lyft app, L-Y-F-T. Use your discount code D-E-R-E-K-605503. And now, the topic of today's podcast. Way back in the early 1900s, there was a small town. The town derived its name from the Native Americans who used to live in the area. The town's name was said to mean pretty place or pleasant view. It was a very small and peaceful town. They had a publicly funded armory, the only one in the state at the time. The community was very close-knit, and in the 1900s, their population was between two and 3,000 people. Very peaceful place where everybody knows your name, the neighbors know each other, and you always know what's going on. Most of the people in town participate in the town events. They go to church together. They're friends. They talk to each other. They invite each other over for dinner. It's that small-town atmosphere where people look out for each other. Being in that small-town environment is one of the things that makes this event so shocking. William Mansfield had several different names. He went by George Worley, Jack Turnbaugh, and according to several witnesses, he was a drug addict, addicted to cocaine. One of the suspects in this crime, William Mansfield had the nickname Blackie. During a grand jury investigation, Mansfield was arrested. An alibi showing that he was at work in a completely different location enabled him to beat the charges. There was a suspicion that a very powerful senator, Senator Frank Jones, had hired William Mansfield to commit this heinous crime. But after the grand jury could not indict him, largely based on his alibi, he was set free. Then there was Reverend George Kelly. George Kelly was a traveling preacher. Several years of traveling through the Midwest and preaching to different congregations had led him to this small town. 
and he was brought up on charges for this heinous crime. After hours and hours of interrogation, Reverend George Kelly confessed to the crime. During a lengthy court trial, the prosecution was unable to get a conviction. Reverend George Kelly was then set free. George Kelly was not the only person to confess to this small-town crime. Several prisoners who were currently incarcerated at the time also confessed. The investigation against Reverend Kelly was very public. The press reported on it. There were several run-ins between Kelly and the police, and having Kelly's confession seemed to be the most likely reason to convict him. However, after further investigation, it appears that that confession was given under duress. This Reverend Kelly would go on to commit several other crimes. With Kelly being a minister, it was very difficult for the community to assume that he would commit any kind of crime. In his personal life, he was very good on a typewriter, but he was very odd. At one point in time, he had placed an ad in a local newspaper trying to hire a private secretary. After getting an application from one young woman, he explained to her that she had to be naked when she typed her notes. Reverend Kelly continued to write letters to this woman and was eventually arrested for sending obscene material through the mail. He was later institutionalized and underwent several months of intense therapy. The Reverend was mentally unstable, but perhaps not the criminal of today's show. A prisoner in a county jail in Detroit, George Myers, he confessed to this heinous crime. There was a rumor that his fingerprints are said to have been found at the scene of the crime. During the confession, George said he was paid to commit this crime and demanded part of the money before he did the job. He received some of the money, then he committed the crime, went back to this man whose name he cannot remember and asked for the rest of his money, but he was denied. He was upset and left town, never to come back. This was just one of the many stories that George Myers told while being incarcerated. Some of his details were inaccurate, so police concluded that he had just heard about the crime in the newspapers and confessed fraudulently. A homeless man, Andy Sawyer, was a suspect in this crime. Andy Sawyer was traveling through the town around the same time that the murders took place, and that Sawyer had threatened to kill someone. The threat he made was eerily similar to the actual method of execution for the people in this podcast. It turns out he was just very interested in the case, and he was not the criminal they were looking for. Later on, Joe Ricks was arrested after he came off of a train wearing shoes that were covered in blood. Joe Ricks was asked for the status of where he was at the time of the incident. He was asked about his blood-stained shoes. He said he obtained the shoes from somebody else on the train, and the accounts of his whereabouts at the time of the crime seemed to be reliable enough to police that he was not considered a suspect. Reverend Burris, seeing as he was on his deathbed, he couldn't remember all the details, but this deathbed confession did put doubt into the minds of authorities. 
Now, back in the early 1900s, crime scenes were not processed the way that they are today. It was very common for members of the public to just walk through a crime scene. It was common for neighbors to stumble upon the crime scene and go inside and move things around before the authorities actually got there. That is one of the things that makes this case virtually unsolvable now, a hundred years later. Dr. F.S. Williams was a physician at the time, and he actually had the chance to examine the bodies of those involved in this crime, only to see a little girl with her head bashed in. There was blood spattered everywhere, blood all over the pillows, all over the sheets, all over their clothing. This is what happened. Sometime between the evening of June 9th, 1912, and the early morning of June 10th, 1912, Josiah Moore, a local businessman in the town of Villisca, Iowa, his wife, Sarah Moore, their children, Herman, 11-year-old son, Catherine, 9-year-old daughter, Boyd and Paul, roughly ages 7 and 5, sons of the Moors, and then two girls who were not even descendants of the Moors, Lena Stillinger and her sister Ina. They were included in this crime. After a lengthy investigation, the evidence points to the following events. A killer had snuck into the Moors' household while the Moors were out at church. They returned home from church with the Stillinger girls. The killer either hid in the attic or hid in a closet until everyone went to sleep. Once the family went to sleep, the killer exited his hiding place, armed with Josiah's axe. He used this axe to smash in the heads of each person one by one. He appears to have started with Josiah Moore and then his wife, Sarah, striking them violently with the axe, blood spattering everywhere. Once the head of household and his wife were dead, the killer went into the adjoining room, striking the children violently with his axe. The killer got so violent with the axe that there were marks all over the ceiling from the way he was violently swinging it. At the end of the bloody mess, all six moors were dead, and the two Stillinger girls were dead as well. The axe was left inside the house, and next to the axe was a slab of bacon. The windows and mirrors in the house were all covered by the killer. The killer used sheets and clothing to cover up the windows and the mirrors so no reflections could be seen and nobody from the outside could see what was happening. This is the crime that put Villisca, Iowa on the map. The crime has never been solved to this day. At the time, all the townspeople had their own individual theories. I read off the list of suspects at the beginning of the podcast, and you can imagine how each person was wholeheartedly convinced about who actually committed the crime. Based on my own research, I have my own theory. I think the lead suspect... Mr. Manfield actually committed the crime as he was associated with several axe murders, not just in Villisca, but in other towns and states as well. He seems to be the most likely suspect when you consider all the evidence. However, there's compelling evidence against several people in this case. 
The house in Villisca, well, that's still there. They allow tourists to come through and see the house. And if you've got enough money, you can actually rent the house for the night and spend the night there. We may never know what happened. Technology has been able to solve many crimes throughout the years. But this may be one that goes forever unsolved. Purely based on the time that the crime happened, regardless of who committed the crime, they're certainly dead. And it appears they've taken that secret to their grave with them. This is one of the more famous murder crimes. The house was examined by the host of uh, the show Paranormal State, as well as being named by the Travel Channel as the most terrifying place in America. In 2009, there was a film... Haunting Velisca that was released in March of 2010 on the road to Velisca, the hunt for the Midwest Axemen by Hank Brewster came out. There was recently a Netflix movie that came out 2016 or maybe it was this year. But you can find that on Netflix about the Velisca Axe murderers. It's not really a documentary, but they take you back to a house that looks similar to the Velisca house, and they add some fiction to it. And it's basically a horror movie about the ghosts of the Velisca house coming back and haunting the current inhabitants or the current visitors of the house. So you can check that out on Netflix. And you can do your own research. If you're ever passing through Iowa, I recommend visiting the small town of Velisca and checking out the house that used to belong to the Moors. And if you're not going by the Velisca house, make sure you're using Lyft. Don't forget to get your discount on your very first ride using discount code Derek, D-E-R-E-K, 605503. Because this has been The Derek Izzy Show. Good day. Good day.